Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. The holiday season, oh, oh, that was nice. Holiday season, you're bright and ready. Holiday season is upon us, and there's so much to be thankful for. One thing I'm really thankful for is uh, you guys and your prayers. Your prayers made such a big difference. A couple of weeks ago, we were praying for baby Barrett. Let's throw up the picture. Uh, baby Barrett is born, and we were praying for baby Barrett because he has a heart condition in the womb, and they knew that, and they needed to get baby, the baby out uh, and do a procedure, and they did the surgery last Friday, and as the father said himself in his own words, Barrett is crushing it. He's doing fantastic, and he's, yeah, well, praise God. We, we took a moment as a church to pause and pray for him, and um, they got a chance to watch us do that online, and we're just in tears. So I just want you to know, you just, these little ways we reach out to others through our prayers, our words, our actions, it makes an impact, it makes a difference. So I want to thank you for that. Um, and that's who we want to be as a church. We want to be a generous church that is just offering up whatever God has given us our prayers, our, our money, our time, our talent, to make an impact in others. And I want to give you another chance right now, all right? One simple way you can make an, an impact and extend the generous, loving heart of God to somebody is by turning to somebody and introducing yourself and thank them for coming to church today. Come on, go ahead and greet somebody new. Take a minute, greet, high five, handshake. Thank you, everyone. Well, we've been, we are coming now to the end of our study in Mark, chapters one through eight. And if you're new with us today, we've been in a series studying the gospel of Mark, and we're going to wrap up the first eight chapters, and the theme for our series has been just follow Jesus. And we've been looking at every passage in Mark uh, through the lens of what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? How does this passage teach us how to follow him? And that is as relevant for those of you who are not yet followers of Jesus, and you're wondering, what does it really mean to follow him? Well, what does it mean for me to give my life to Jesus as Savior and Lord of my life? It's also relevant for us who have been following him for a long time, because sometimes we need moments of realignment, right? You got to take your car in to get realigned every once in a while, if you don't, you wear out your tires, and they align your tires so that you're not putting pressure in uneven places and wear them out and waste hundreds and hundreds of dollars. We all need a heart realignment with God where there are ways in which we have defined our life and what it means to follow Jesus, but apart from what he says. As we've been looking at Jesus's life, we've had those moments, and today we're going to have a really big one. Today we've built up to this moment. Jesus has been getting us ready for this moment right here, he's been preparing his disciples and us for one of the most important teachings that Jesus ever gives us in all of the New Testament. He's going to talk to us about the cross. And the way that the cross defines him and needs to define our life as his followers. This 
topic is so huge, we're going to pick it up again in the new year with the second half of Mark. So we're only wrapping up the first part of it. So if you're new and you want to get in on it with us, you get a chance to join us. We're going to be putting out our new book starting next weekend. And this is the second half of Mark titled The Way of the Cross. And from January all the way to Easter, culminating on Easter morning, we are going to listen and watch and follow Jesus as he helps us understand what it means that we are to take up our cross and follow him. It's going to be a really, really exciting new year, and I can't wait for you guys to join us in it. So look for the books next week, but today, here we are, Mark chapter 8, verse 22. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. And when he had spit on the man's eyes, he put his hands on him and said, and Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people, uh, but they look like trees walking around. So once again, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes and then his eyes were open. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked them, who do people say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. But what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him, and then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. And what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory. Wow, this is God's word for us today. Go ahead and take a seat. God help us. We've been looking at what it means to follow Jesus, and so we're going to use this passage to kind of help us gather up the lessons that Jesus has been giving us about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so we're going to explore the way Jesus defines the marks of a true disciple in this passage. And we're going to start with the first mark. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? What sets us apart from just being curious about him, interested in him, and actually being a disciple of Jesus? Well, we're going to pick up in verse 25 to give us the first distinction of a person who follows Jesus. Verse 25 says, once more Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes and then his eyes were opened and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. 
You know, this reminds me actually of a moment with my son. Um, we took my kids to this healing service. And I know you're probably like, whoa, you went to a healing service? Yes, but I knew the couple that was leading it. So, you know, not all healing services are created equal. And I knew I could trust these guys. And so we went to go take our kids, my daughter, to get healed with her eyes. She was having really a lot of problems with her eyesight. And so there we were in the service. And before we could get up with my daughter, my son, who wore glasses, charged down to the front. And we're like, oh, oh, okay. He got down there before us. I just see him getting prayer. You got to understand, he's in elementary school. I can't remember his exact age. I want to say around fourth grade. Well, after the service, we got my daughter prayed for, and we moved, we, we, we went on, and um, the next day, my, next thing I know, my son is just not wearing glasses to school. And we're like, where are your glasses? I got, I don't think I need them, Dad. And we're like, uh, okay. Well, just take them with you, just in case. Day after day, week became week, months became months. Yeah, we were a little slow to believe, but his eyes were healed. He's like, Dad, my eyes are healed. I can see. I don't, I don't need the glasses anymore. And to this day, he hasn't needed them. Now, my daughter, we got her prayer for, and she wasn't healed in her eyesight. She actually likes her glasses and didn't want to lose them. <laughs> but my son at the time, we didn't go there for my daughter, but we went there with my son, and surprisingly, he was, something happened, and he was healed. We believe that Jesus still heals today. We've done some services talking about healing and sharing stories of healing in this room. This moment is a moment where Jesus heals this man, but it's even more than a moment of physical healing. Jesus has a lesson that he wants to teach us about being a disciple. What is it? What does this moment teach us about following Jesus, about being a disciple? Well, if you go to Mark 7.33, if you turn to there, you'll see the story of Jesus healing a deaf and mute man. Okay, now this is really important because here we get another Mark sandwich, Right? We've been talking to you about this. It's a literary device that Mark uses where he takes one story and then he uses another one just like it. And in the middle, he makes his interpretive statement. And these are meant to create like a framework. And, and at the very middle is the meat where we understand what he's trying to say to us. So he's got a deaf and mute guy and then a blind guy and they're both healed in a very similar way. Check this out. In Mark 7 and then right here in chapter 8, both of these people are taken aside with Jesus. Jesus spits in both stories. Don't ask me why he spits. Hey, we'll leave that one with Jesus and ask him when we see him. Number three, their ears and their eyes, it says in the, in the passage, are opened. Now, these miracles are done in a really unique way. Now, right in the middle of the sandwich, we get chapter 8, 17. I want to read it to you because it's going to help us understand what Jesus is trying to show us through this miracle. Chapter 8, verse 17, if you turn in your books, actually turn in your book. If you got it, turn in your book, open it up. Verse 17, if you don't have it, you can just look on the screen. Here we go. Jesus says, do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? So the moment that Jesus does this, it's a physical miracle, but it's also like a parable. It's like an object lesson where Jesus is trying to show us something about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. He's, number one, showing us that we need Jesus to open the eyes and the ears of our heart in order to see and hear God in our life. You see, listen, we talked a couple weeks ago about if God is so amazing and so real and awesome, then why is it so hard to see him? 
And because we can't compile all the scientific evidence that we think we need, we doubt that he's real because we don't see him. And here is what the Bible, how the Bible answers it. The Bible says, it's not because God's not real that you don't see him. It's because you are spiritually blind. And Jesus needs to heal us spiritually in order to have spiritual perception to see him and to hear him in our life. Could you use some restored sight and hearing in your life with God? Could you use a fresh touch of Jesus healing you in order to see him and heal and hear him in your life? You guys, this is as relevant for those of you who are not Christian. Maybe you're wondering, Ryan, how do I hear God more in my life? How do I see him more? I want to see God in my life. It's also true for us as Christians because we can find ourselves in moments in our life where we come into circumstances, and that's what Mark's been showing us. As disciples, we come into seasons of life where we come into a storm, we come into a challenge that in those moments, it causes us to feel like we can't see God in the storm. We can't hear his voice in the difficult moment we're facing. And it's not that God isn't with us, it's that we need a fresh touch of God to see him and to have the eyes and the ears of our hearts open. Think about it this way. The idea of something being real, even if you can't see it, I've been loving the web telescope images. I don't know if you've gone online, but type in web images of space, and you're going to see amazing things. But here it is. We have the Hubble telescope that was looking further into space than we ever thought we could see. But now we have the Webb telescope, and we are seeing galaxies and systems that we didn't even know existed. And they even lay up images from one telescope to the next, showing how we are seeing how absolutely vast and overwhelming the cosmos is. There are things that exist that we can't see, and just because we can't see them doesn't mean they're not real. And no matter how bright the sun is, if you're blind, you can't see the sun. And we need to be healed at the heart level. And this speaks to the first mark of a disciple. A disciple is someone who commits to becoming a lifelong learner of Jesus. What he's showing us is, is that someone who's following him has to submit to the need on a daily basis of having the eyes and the ears of their understanding open to better recognize him in their life. And this is not about an intellectual perceiving, like you need in calculus. This is about an opening of our will to open our life to God. See, there's a really big difference between knowing God and knowing how to solve a calculus problem. Because solving a calculus problem is about an intellectual challenge. It's about how do I solve this thing and learning about the laws and learning the rules. But when it comes to God, it's not about how smart you are. It's about how humble you are. Because humility is the capacity to submit our will to God's. And that's what allows us to begin to see him. It's, humility is what allows us to admit we don't have all the answers. It's the ability to admit where we, have, we are wrong and to allow God to give us a fresh new perspective about who he is. And that takes us um, to Matthew eleven twenty eight. Check this out. Matthew eleven twenty eight says this, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. This is the fundamental mark of a disciple, someone who is committed to learning their whole life, who's able to say, I've never arrived. I still have more about Jesus to learn. A disciple in the Greek means methetes. It literally means to be a student or a learner. 
So what does that mean to learn? How do we learn in the spiritual way? How do we learn in the kingdom of God? If it's not about calculus, but it's about our hearts, listen to what Mark chapter 1, verse 15 says. In Mark 1, 15, Jesus gives us the secret. So if you want to start seeing God more in your life, if you want to start hearing him more, he's about to give you the secret right now. Okay, here we go. We already read it. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. If you have your books, would you turn there? Because we're reviewing what we've been learning. Open up to the very beginning. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The time has come, he said, and here we go. Repent and believe the good news. There it is right there. Repent and believe. Or really actually what Jesus is saying is, you have to repent in order to believe. So what is repenting? What does that mean? Does that mean like, tell yourself you're a bad person, you're lame? Is that sort of some kind of like self-flagellation exercise? You know, I'm such a terrible person, God. You're awesome. I'm lame. I'm a worm. No. Repenting literally means, it means the willingness to change your perspective or your mind and your life about something. It means to think again and allow your mind to be changed. And there is something wonderfully freeing about it, but also something really hard. Let me ask you this. What makes it hard to admit when we're wrong? Have you ever had a moment in the last week where you had to admit you were wrong? Can you think of any moment in your week last week where you admitted you were wrong? What makes it, when you get a chance to admit you're wrong, does it fill you with excitement? Do you get like, yes, I'm wrong? Because now I get to grow in my knowledge and my understanding. I get to see things from a new perspective. I get to see things even more. I'm so excited. Thank you for showing me where I was wrong. Yeah, yeah yes. There's something about admitting we're wrong that just cuts to the very core. Now we're getting to what it takes to be a disciple. To be a learner in God's kingdom, it means you become someone who is willing to admit where you've got it wrong again and again and again. And in other words, Christians are the people who are the most able to admit where they're seeing things wrong and, or wrongly. And they're, they're most open and comfortable with allowing themselves to see things from a new perspective according to God's truth. Allowing God to give us a new perspective. It means sort of repent means to realign our thinking and our attitude and our lifestyle according to God's truth. Okay, now where do you sense that happening in your life? Where might that be going on? And what is, what is the challenge for you to allow God to give you a fresh perspective? We're going to dig into that actually in just a minute a little more deeply. And it might get a little uncomfortable, but wherever God is asking us to change our perspective, it's in order to give us a greater vision of his wisdom. Let's dive into this next point. The next point is this. Uh, the second mark is in verse 27. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? So notice, he's walking through all the other perspectives that people have about Jesus, and he's walking us along with that. All the different ways that we are tempted to look at Jesus and the way we hear other people in our life talk about him. And then look at right here, verse 29. Before, right, he warms them up, and then he goes for the jugular. But what about you, he asked them. Who do you say I am? Peter answered. You are the Messiah. Now, 
What I love about this moment is this is the moment that Jesus has been building to disciples the entire time. And if you're new here, Jesus has been in with his disciples for about a year. And all these ideas about him have been circulating, and it's not until now that he finally knows they're ready to answer this question. Now, here's what I want to put to you. Why does Jesus turn to them and ask them, who do you say I am? Why is that so important in our relationship with Jesus that we, with our own words, with our own heart, make a decision to acknowledge who he is? Why is that so important? Because that's what Jesus is trying to show us, that a disciple is someone who publicly and personally declares allegiance to Jesus as Savior and Lord. When has that been in your life? When have you had a moment where you had to take a stand for Jesus? Maybe it was with your words, where someone asked you, hey, what did you do this last weekend? And you had a chance to say, oh, I went to church, it was, eh. Or I went to the carols by candlelight, I went to my church, or or when someone's asking your opinion about something and to bring in your faith perspective, when have you had a chance to just take a stand and just let others know about your faith? For me, I can't escape it because whenever careers come up, whenever I ask them, hey, what do you do? Invariably, what do you do? Well, I'm a pastor, so then now it's cats out of the bag. I was recently in my, I swim masters at the YMCA, and I was talking to one of my swim mates. We were sitting there in between a set. We had this very conversation. I asked him, hey, what do you do? Oh, I'm a lab technician. I work in a, in a, in a pharmaceutical. And they go, what do you do? I'm a pastor. And their eyes is bugged out. I mean, just like, <laughs> as if, you know, pastors can't swim or who knows why. <laughs> and she just looked at me and she's like, you're a pastor? I never would have guessed. I didn't know how to take that. I didn't know. I was like, thank you, I think. I don't know. Listen to what um, Romans 10 9 says. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Why is this so important? So a disciple is committed to learning, and a disciple is committed and prepared to declare, to make the inward reality of their faith and outward public demonstration. Let's talk about this for a moment. Because in this moment, we're not talking about by telling, by declaring your love for God that it makes God love you more. It doesn't save you. But it allows you to receive the love that is already there. Let me give you an illustration. Can we go to my wedding picture? Look at this. Here we are. One of my favorite illustrations was... um, is to illustrate this is wedding vows. See, what's interesting in this picture you'll notice is that my wife and I are at the altar, we're exchanging our vows, but notice that we're not alone. When you get married and you exchange vows, it's a deeply personal decision, but it's not private. This really intimate personal decision is actually a public thing too. Can you imagine if we're standing at the altar and the pastor looks at me and says, do you take this woman in sickness and in health for better or for worse? And I looked at her and I said, well, you know what I think. Or I just looked at her and just gave her the look, the smolder. (laughs) You know how I feel. There's something about saying it out loud that it's not making her love me It's allowing me to allow the significance of the love between us 
to become a greater reality in my life. And there's something about it too that when we are open about our faith that allows others to witness something beautiful and it warms their hearts. I don't know about you, but when you go to a wedding, if you're married, whenever you go to a wedding, doesn't it just like touch your heart? Doesn't it just remind you about your first love, you know? You see that young couple, they don't know what they're in for. They don't know the battle over the dishes and they don't know the battle over chores and over the toilet seat that's about to happen. They don't, they're just so naive and happy-go-lucky, but you see that love and it, it actually brings you back to a posture that's closer to the truth than that old cynical heart that can take over our life. You see, when we publicly declare our love for God, it deepens the reality of God's presence in our life and it radiates God's goodness to those around us who don't know him. Well, what is it that keeps us from being more open about our faith? Jesus speaks to this very directly in verse, look at verse 38. He says, if anyone is ashamed of me, and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Tough words. But let's talk about this idea of being ashamed. You see, when I stood up and if on our first date, my wife, if this woman said, hey, would you be willing to stand in front of 300 people and declare your love for me. I might have been like, I don't know if I'm, hey, hey, this is a great first day. Don't get me wrong. I'm loving it, but I don't know if I'm ready for this. But on that day when I stood up there, I wish I could have shouted out my love for her to a room of 3,000 people. There's something about this idea of shame. The enemy wants us to be ashamed of our faith in Jesus. And this is how the enemy does it. The idea of shame is the preoccupation of what others might think of us if they knew we followed Jesus. For some of us, the fear is that others are going to look at us like we have compromised our intellectual integrity and have become a religious fanatic. Are you with me? Come on. That was where I was at. That's where I was at in high school until my friends started walking me through, I don't have to sacrifice my intellectual integrity to trust and believe in God. For others of us, it's culture. It's the way popular culture twists things so that we become ashamed of the lifestyle of Jesus. Sexual holiness is one of those topics. And as Christians, we believe in sexual purity, abstaining from sexual intimacy until we're married. But when you meet people who are not walking with Jesus, they think you're out of your mind. I'll never forget being in college. is one of those stories that I like to share because... I had a friend of mine who was in my dorm and she invited me into her room with all of the women in our suite. No joke. There was like 10 women in there. And she, they, they looked at me and said, is it true that as a Christian, you are not having sex before marriage? And I said, yes. And they looked at me like, no, like this, like the, like the woman in the pool. <laughs> I'm not kidding. They, they just looked at me in stunned disbelief. It was such a weird moment because I was a new Christian. I'd only been a Christian for a year. And it was like me, and then it just stayed. I literally stayed, and they're all just sitting there. And they're all just looking at me like, so you're committed to not doing, having any sex until you're married? I go, yeah. They thought, oh, well, you're crazy. Or as one person told my son, 
I feel sorry for you because you're going to miss out. You know, I know it sounds crazy, but I'm going to tell you the things that our culture wants us to be ashamed of this. And as, as Christians, our culture wants us to be ashamed of our faith because if you don't agree with same-sex union, then you're a bigot and you're prejudiced. And our culture wants to tell us that you can't be a person of love and compassion and a person who holds to Jesus' sexual ethics together. And that if you, if you hold to Jesus' views, you are narrow-minded, you're prudish, you are old school, and you're medieval. But on the other side of the, of the coin is the temptation to be afraid of what other Christians think. And we can fall into the trap of what will Christians think of me if they know I care about what is happening with racial justice in our country? Are they going to think I'm all woke? Are they going to think I'm all critical race theory in I've seen Christians go through that too because Jesus cares about people from every tribe, tongue, and nation coming together and being reconciled and removing the dividing wall of hostility. And what we find in Christian ethics is that the Christian values don't land us squarely on the political right or left very comfortably. And the early church found itself in in a third space that wasn't politically right or politically left, but in the third space called the kingdom of God. And so we can find ourselves afraid to take our stand with Jesus because we're afraid of being condemned by the world and being stabbed in the back by their believers. But we're to declare that Jesus is our Lord. I was talking to a friend this this week. I asked him, what is keeping you from following Jesus? And he said, well, I've got these friends. I remember that was my case too. But when we confess Jesus is Lord, get this, you guys, we are set free from the fear of what others think of us and our lives become rooted in what our Father in heaven thinks. And that is the most freeing thing in the world, knowing that you are loved by God and that you are his son and daughter and it anchors you and it grounds you in something so much deeper than all the things that this world wants you to find your identity in apart from God. To find your identity in your career, your politics, or your sexuality. Hey, those are gifts that God's given us. Thank God for our democracy. I thank God for it. And I thank God for our sexual lives and our sexual desires. They're God-given Go back to Genesis. God made Adam and Eve naked. Deal with it. (laughs) But they're not, they don't belong at the center of how we identify ourselves. And well, that takes us to the next point. The third mark is that we, well, let's review. Commit to becoming a lifelong learner of Jesus. Number two, we declare and profess our allegiance to Jesus as Savior. And number three, A disciple embraces Jesus' cross. The way the cross defines him and the way the cross defines our life. I've only got a few minutes, so let me just touch on this because we're going to spend January to Easter actually digging into what Jesus means by this in incredible, incredible detail. Every week, we're going to be looking at how the cross defines Jesus and us together as we go through this book. So if you don't, next week, 
get your book, buy it for a friend, let's do this together, but let me just touch on it briefly. Verse 31, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. This is the third mark. Above all, a disciple is someone who has received Jesus' death for them. Number one, what is Jesus' cross defined about himself? It defines that he is going to win by losing. He's not going to come as a political warrior in the way that we all want our hero to come, but he's going to come in a way that is not using hard power, but soft power. He is going to beat the devil through forgiveness and not with the sword. One of my favorite quotes on this comes from Tim Keller. Listen to this. Tim Keller just lays it out. He says this in his book, Jesus the King. When Jesus went to the cross and died for our sins, he won through losing. He achieved our forgiveness on the cross, not by judging us, but by taking on himself, right, our fault. Look at what he says here. On the cross, by turning the values of the world on their head, he did not fight fire with fire. He didn't come and raise an army. He didn't take power. He gave it up, and yet he triumphed. You see, there was no expectation that the Messiah was going to come and suffer. Did you know that? Did you know that the Jew had no concept that the Messiah would come and suffer and die to free us and liberate us? They were expecting a political leader who would come and free them with hard power. And the temptation has been for the church to always define the pathway of God's victory through hard power. And Jesus is inviting us here to see it differently, that God is going to win us to himself by absorbing in him the consequence of our poor choice through forgiveness and through love. I remember talking to a father whose son had decided to embrace the same-sex lifestyle. And his father, a strong believer, had decided to excommunicate, essentially, the son from the family. And I asked him about it. I go, why are you doing that? And he said, because I want my discipline to show him what he's doing is wrong. And my hope is one day he'll want my love back enough that he'll come back home. That's hard power. And I said, hmm, can I take you to the cross for a minute? Can I take you to what the scriptures teach, that in kindness, the kindness of God, you'll be led to repentance? What do you think about that? And as we sat on the cross, a father willing to be crucified for his children, what do you think that means? How do you think that that God's love, it, it, don't you think your son knows that you don't agree with him? But is your distancing him, is that going to convince him? Or is it going to be your love, even though he knows you don't agree with him? And we had this really difficult conversation about where is God's power to touch our life? Is it in his judgment or is it in his gracious love? Which one has the power to change our hearts? The second is how the cross marks our life. Now, the only thing I can go into is I want to go into this one statement 
because Jesus has these really difficult words. Let me read this. And as the band comes out, I want to invite the band to come on up. And as the band comes out, let me just read these words. The cross represents God's love for you, something you can't earn, something you can't achieve. So there's nothing you can brag about. But listen to this. When Jesus told him he was going to go to the cross, he then, Peter's response is this. He took Jesus and he rebuked him. Verse 30, 33. And then Jesus said this, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. The way that God sets us free is by teaching us that we need to deny ourselves. It's not by pursuing all of our heart's desires that we find happiness in life. It is by defining our source of happiness by God's truth and drawing near to him. Listen to the way C.S. Lewis puts it. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. And this is what the Bible teaches, that when we define happiness for our life apart from God, that is the reason why sin runs rampant in our world, why there's heartache and selfishness and greed and war and broken families. It's because somewhere individuals or communities of people started to seek their happiness and define happiness apart from God rather than according to his will. But this morning, it's about this invitation to come to the cross to say, God, your will is the most loving, forgiving, gracious option in my life and beyond anything else I could ever come up with on my own. And it's that trade, and that's the faith, to believe by surrendering your life to Jesus, he is going to set you free from your will, where you are at the center. And that feels like dying. Because it's protecting ourselves. But when you surrender that, God promises that he will come into the center of your life. And wherever God is asking you to die, it's where he wants to raise you up. There's this great line in the Bible that says, the son of God loved me and he gave himself for me. That really just says it all. Sorry, I could have saved you a lot of time. Just read that. We're going to start this journey in January of learning like, okay, Lord, how do we allow your will to be done in my, our life? And where are you asking me to make that exchange? Where can I make that exchange so that your will, more and more of your goodness is defining my life? That's what makes it so hard is because sometimes our version of goodness is just, well, we cling to it. And God has an even greater vision than we can have for ourselves. When this journey, it begins by letting Jesus be the leader and savior of our life. It means allowing ourselves to be set free from what others think of us and becoming a learner of Jesus and being willing to repent, being willing to change our perspective and allowing his truth to change the way we see ourselves, the way we see one another, the way we see God himself. And if you've never done that, I want to give you a chance right now give you a chance to just take a stand for him. It's not going to make God love you more, but it's going to allow you to allow God's love to more radically define your life. Because 2,000 years ago on the cross, he took a stand for you. 
He bore that shame on the cross, crucified, not in private, but you know, Jesus was crucified publicly in front of everybody, showing the world that he is not ashamed to be called your father, your savior, your Lord. And if you've never accepted Jesus as savior and or you wanna renew that commitment, I wanna invite you right now just to raise your hand. This is your way of saying, okay, Jesus, I don't understand everything, but I want to open my life to you. You can have it. I don't care what other people think of me anymore. I don't want to define my life by what others think. I want you and what you have to say to me to define my life. If that's you, just raise a hand and we're gonna pray for you in this moment. Is anybody here? I see you, bro. I see you. Come on, I see you. Yeah, bro, I see you. I see you, Sean. I see you. I see you, bro. And then maybe you need to raise your hand with these guys because maybe you've been a, just having a hard time letting your faith out when you get beyond these walls and you need fresh boldness to not hold it in, but to let it out in the grace and the truth of God. Does anybody else want to join these guys? Raise your hand up. I want to pray a blessing over you as well. Come on, put your hands up. Okay, I see you. Oh, I see you. I see you, Darren. I see you. I see you. Okay. All right, let's just pray. Let's pray for those who are making a decision this morning. Now, if you if you put your hand up, would you put it up for a minute? We're going to lay a hand on your shoulder real quick. Let's put a hand up. Let's put a hand on those shoulders right now. Jesus, we just pray that right now these dear ones would feel your love coming upon their life, your hand on their life. Would you just, I just want to invite you to pray with this simple prayer with me. Jesus, just say it out loud. Jesus, I receive your death for me. And I surrender my will for your will. Forgive me for my sin. Fill me with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.